Galatians 5. Uh, we are moving along here with Paul. Paul is going to now transition in the letter. He's been exhorting these Galatian believers in regard to the liberty they have as sons, the freedom they have in Christ and the gospel, which was under attack. And he's moving now to a more applicational section where he's kind of laid out his doctrinal discussion and arguments with them. And chapter 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Um, really, the verse in, in English is one kind of sentence there, but it's kind of two sentences in the Greek. And uh, it begins by saying, For freedom did Christ set us free, which is a statement. And then the exhortation is, Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of bondage. So this is kind of a clear transition here where he's moving into, Okay, I've said what I was going to say. I've stated the truth. Now I'm going to sum it up and exhort you in regard to that truth. And the freedom that he's speaking of here, the liberty that we have that Christ has set us free in, is again, mainly freedom from the law and its curse. Freedom in conscience to live as sons and daughters of God. We have been set free from our sin, but also from the law and the burden of it so that we could experience freedom in Christ. And the whole thing that Paul's been working with here is you guys are throwing away the freedom that Christ wants you to experience as mature sons and daughters and turning back to the law. And uh, it's particularly the freedom as sons and daughters to have a clear conscience before him. It, before that, you were constantly in fear of keeping the law, of never measuring up to the law, because nobody could measure up to the law. That's why the law had sacrifices, because you weren't going to measure up to the law. A constant freedom of, or fear of being um, unclean ceremonially. Even the, Paul's going to say here again, you can't just do part of the law, which he's already said before. Even in giving a circ, uh, going for circumcision, there were sacrifices that needed to be given. Those sacrifices had to go through rites of purification and, and cleanliness. And all these things were constantly involved in, in the, the law where there was a burden and they lived with the fear of impending punishment or of God's wrath. And God doesn't want us as sons and daughters now to live that way the opposite of freedom is he says being entangled again with a yoke of bondage stand fast in the freedom that christ has made you free with and don't be entangled again don't go back to this bondage that you knew of before peter would say in acts 15 now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Paul would say, Peter would say, we, can't, we couldn't even bear it as Jews. This yoke, this burden, this idea of being weighed down by something. And what Paul has to do now is encourage these believers to stand fast because there's always going to be a challenge to be entangled again. Maybe for a while you're free, like these Galatians were. 
but there's always going to be a challenge. Something in all of our lives will come along that will pressure us to relate to God based on something other than the work of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some other measuring stick that's going to get us caught up with not only just God and what he's done, but something else, some person, some standard. And the danger is not necessarily a denial of God. He's not saying don't deny God because they're not denying God. It's entanglement, being caught up with God and something else. You're mixing things up here. And there's a lot of believers as these believers were real believers, I would guess most of them, but they're burdened by, entangled with, caught up in a yoke that Christ never put on them in their Christian life. And depending on the yoke, some are heavier than others. And what Paul is saying is you've been set free. Live in that freedom. Understand what it is and stand fast. Don't get entangled again. Don't get brought back into this bondage. And now he's going to move on and begin to, again, describe that a little bit. Verse 2, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, which is a, a statement of witness that he uses five other times in the scripture. You can find them on your own. I can't do all your homework for you. And he says, I, Paul, say to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. It's a pretty dramatic statement here, and he doesn't even argue it out anymore. He's already argued it out. Now, just under his own apostolic authority, he makes a dramatic statement saying, I, Paul, I'm saying this to you. I'm witnessing of something that is true. If you are circumcised, Christ is worth nothing to you. If you go back to circumcision, if you make it a necessary part of What's going on here? Christ will profit you nothing. Christ and circumcision cannot be entangled. You can't put the two of them together. He's forcing them to choose. The question is, are Christ's death and resurrection enough to make Jew and Gentile right with God? Yes or no? That's the question. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is it enough? to make both Jew and Gentile right with God? And it's either a yes or no question. You can't say yes with circumcision, dietary law, church attendance, baptism, confirmation, holy days, confession, tithing, prayer, right? People want to now connect all these other things these things are also necessary for your salvation to make you right with God. No, do I have to again become a Jew in practice to become a child of God, a son or daughter of God, to become a Christian? And the answer is no, of course. That's why he says, if you go to circumcision, Christ profits you nothing. If you turn away from him, if you have to add something else to this, if you supplant Christ, then he's not sufficient. If I had to add anything else to his work, that means it wasn't enough. And, and there's always this, this drive to bring something else in or, or to tie in some other identity or work in it. Of course, for them, it was being a Jew. You know, for our modern day, we could say, do I have to be a Catholic 
or a Protestant or Orthodox or Baptist or Calvinist or Calvary Chapelist, right? Whatever you want to say. Do I have to be one of those things to be a son or daughter of God, to be a full son or daughter of God? Either the work of Christ is enough or it's not. And the problem here was this entanglement of things, God plus this other stuff. He says, if you use circumcision, if you go and you have to be circumcised, then Christ profits you nothing. Wasn't enough. Forces them to make that decision there. And three, he adds to that and he says, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. He's representing another side of the truth here, that the law is also all or nothing. Christ is all or nothing, and the law is also all or nothing. You can't say, I want to do part of the law. Again, people like having a la carte religion. They like taking parts of religion that work for them, but they don't like the parts that don't work for them. Right? I'm a religious person. People say stuff like this. And or, you know, ridiculous things like, oh, all religions are like basically the same. They only differ in terms of like heaven, hell, God, creation, prayer, right? They're not actually if you believe the religion, they're not all the same. They're actually different. That's why there's so many of them. So the the person that's trying here to say, yeah, Christ, but then we got to bring us some of the law in here. You have to be circumcised. Well, again, the, the, the whole point was, but even in circumcision, okay, what about the sacrifices? What about the purification? Okay, well, then what about the priests? What about the temple? What about everything else that's involved in all that? You can't just pick and choose little parts of it. Any law-keeping means all law-keeping. Law means I have to work for six days. means I can't wear woolen and linen clothes together means if a family member starts idolatry, I have to be the first one to murder them. Right? Like, if you can't just pick and choose these parts that you want to keep and not others. The other side of that, James 2.10, basically says any law-breaking is all law-breaking. These are both sides of the coin. Any law-keeping means all law-keeping. Any law-breaking means all law-breaking. However, however you want to try to come to this, you can't take a piece of it. If Paul's saying, anybody that gets circumcised, okay, now you're a debtor to do the whole thing. Can't just take one step. Can't just pick out one piece and do that. You have to do it all now. If you need the law, then you need the law. Now, sometimes this can be confusing, I'll say, because people will teach things like, uh, maybe you've heard this, we don't keep the Old Testament ceremonial law or the Old Testament civil law, but we have to keep the Old Testament moral law. That's wrong. I just want to say the Bible clearly states we're either free from law keeping or we're not. And this verse clearly states, again, we can't pick and choose. The problem is just good people are trying to reconcile. Well, I still know thou shalt not steal is wrong, right? Or thou shalt not lie or thou shalt not commit adultery. Like, I still know those things are wrong, so why don't I still need to keep them? And it's really a lot simpler than this. The Bible says Christ kept the law for us. He lived under the law, and he took the curse of the law, and redeemed us from the law. And as followers of Christ, we do this really simple thing called keep Christ's commandments. 
which we learn in the Gospels, and through what the apostles wrote, which were the teachings of Christ. And for anything else that's not in there, he gave us the Holy Spirit. Instead of giving us a whole list of things, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's going to get into, although I don't think we're going to get through the whole chapter tonight. But that's what he's going to lead into, what life in the Spirit would look like. So as a Christian, where the law and Christ's commandments overlap, I'm not keeping the law as much as I am just keeping Christ's commandments. Right? Christ also said it was wrong to be a liar or to steal or to be an adulterer. He just went even further and said, it's not only wrong to be an adulterer, it's wrong to look after a woman, to lust after her in your heart. Christ's commandments go even further than some of where the law went. So as a Christian, it's very simple. The Great Commission is even go and teach what Christ commanded. What we do is we follow Christ's commandments. And some of Christ's commandments overlap with the law. So that's where we still essentially keep those things, but I'm not keeping the law. I'm keeping Christ's commandments because I'm a follower of Christ. That makes sense, right? I'm not going back to the law to try to do those things because I can't pick and choose. I'm set free from the law to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and I do all the things that Christ has commanded. So someone that's trying to put us under a law under any type of scenario, as a Christian, I can always just simply ask, where does Jesus or one of his apostles directly command that for me. If you try to make it a law that we can only sing psalms to the piano, you got to show me where Jesus commanded that. Right? Now it's fine. Like That's not a terrible thing. But you can't make that a commandment for all Christians if Jesus doesn't do that. And so the, the person that wants to go back to the law and just pick and choose pieces of it, Paul says... You can't do that. You're either set free from this or you're not. You're a debtor to it. You're not allowed to make it a la carte. We've been set free and given the Holy Spirit to be sons and daughters of God. And it's the spirit of his son. And we're going to follow his son and be conformed in the image and likeness of his son. And keep his son's commands. So these individuals are trying to mix things that can't be mixed. He says, verse 4, He's kind of layering it on here. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. How do we seek to be justified before God, to be right before God, by law or by grace? He said, if I seek to do it by law, then I've fallen from grace. Once I'm saved, how do we walk with God or serve him? By law or by grace. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We serve God with grace. We're fallen from grace when we begin to relate to God as a debtor. Again, he's given us salvation and the Holy Spirit. As a free gift, if somebody gives you a gift, you, re you receive that gift as a gift, or you take the gift and then say, okay, you know, whatever this gift is, this new iPhone is going to cost 700 bucks, so it's going to take me about a week to work this off and pay you back for it. Well, if you're trying to 
work it off, you're a debtor. You either receive it as a gift or you work for it. How are, are you trying to earn this? Or has somebody else already earned it and given it to you and you've received it freely? That's grace. Working for it, that's the law. And Paul's saying you can't have both again. How are we relating to him? If I then try to work through the law to be justified, I'm estranged from Christ. I have distance from Christ now because that's not what Christ is telling me to do. And I've fallen from grace. I'm no longer walking in the principle that God wants me to. And again, sometimes people do this on purpose. Other people, we, we just get caught up in it. And we find ourselves in a difficult position. Really, this ends up being a large reason why some Christians have joy walking with Jesus and why other people are miserable walking with Jesus. Because <laughs> some people are under a burden that Jesus never put on them. And they think Jesus put it on them, but he didn't. And you know what happens when you try to do something that God hasn't given you the grace to do? You're miserable. That's what happens. There's a lot of Christians that are trying to keep laws that God hasn't given them to keep. And you know what? They don't have the strength to actually do it. What he asks for us is to walk with him in grace, right? Do you think hard thoughts of God? Is he hard to live with or hard to please? If so, it's, it's probably a sign that you're entangled with a yoke of bondage that God didn't put on you. And you've fallen from grace and you've been estranged from Christ in some way. It's not that you're not saved, that he doesn't love you. It's just that you've been led that way or deceived into that through something or someone and it wasn't from him. Paul will say, for we, I think the we there is in contrast to these Judaizers, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Paul saying, we, the people who understand this, recognize the Holy Spirit is the source of power working in us, leading us, causing us to wait for him to finish the work of salvation. We're not working to earn it for ourselves. He's already secured it. I'm following Jesus Christ, but my hope is that my salvation is secure in him. It's kept by the power of God. The end of my faith is the salvation of my soul, Peter would say. And for you and I, I'm not, I don't have to earn that. It's already been earned. And I want to grow in him. I don't want to walk with him and I want to be closer to him. But I don't for a second think that my work is going to earn it or pay off the debt, or it's what's essential for that to happen. Paul will say, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Summing it up, circumcision makes no difference in Christ, whether you are circumcised or you're uncircumcised. You're not you don't have a leg up either way. Uh, again, this was kind of illustrated with Paul's interactions with Timothy and Titus. Timothy, who had a Jewish mother and wanted to be a part of witnessing to Jews, Paul had him circumcised because 
it would open up a door to share the gospel with Jews where they wouldn't want to talk to Timothy if he wasn't circumcised. Where Titus was a Gentile, Paul brought him with in Acts 15 over the whole argument about whether you had to be circumcised to be saved. And he said to him, no way you're getting circumcised. Because it's about the gospel now in terms of how you get saved, not just can I share with people and will they be willing to listen? In those scenarios, Paul said, I'll be all things to all men. But the minute you say circumcision is a necessary part of the gospel, well, you're going to have a hard time with Paul the Apostle. That, that he was not going to have anything to do with. If it's just something that doesn't matter, that can open a door to share the real gospel with somebody, then fine. But you make it a necessary ingredient in the work of Jesus Christ, now there's a problem. And Paul says, circumcision, uncircumcision, they don't avail anything. They're not going to bring you salvation. What does is faith working through love. That's, that's what really matters. And he's going to continue here talking about love. But I think the, there's, there's some argument here where he says faith working through love as to which is kind of first. Um, really, it's, I, to me, it's kind of the chicken and the egg, which brings about which. Does love bring about faith? Does faith bring about the love? I think the answer is simply both of them are working together. Real faith will have real love. Real love will have real faith. Uh, Daniel 3, I just think is such a great example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, standing before the tall golden idol. Everybody has to bow down. They don't bow down. They get told on. They get brought to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, I guess you guys couldn't hear. If you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into the burning, fiery furnace, make it seven times hotter. Uh, they don't even take a second, it says, to think about it. They just say to him, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, we believe our God is able to save us from the burning, fiery furnace, which you'd be like, that's faith. But then they say, but if not, let it be known to you, we don't serve your gods. And to me, that's love. Like, if our God allows us to die in the burning, fiery furnace, he's still God, and your dumb idol's still a dumb idol. Let it be known. <laughs> this is where we stand. It's not just faith because they knew they were going to get delivered, which they didn't. It was faith because we trust the character of our God either way. And there's love in that. How do those two work together? I don't know which one comes first. They both do. And anybody who loves God is going to express faith like that. And Paul, I think, would show this is you're making this big thing out of whether you're circumcised or not. What really matters is faith working in love. That's what will tell the true difference between them and their message and him and his. Verse 7, he's going to appeal to them now. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul wants these Galatians to remember they had a good start. He gives a picture of a race here, and then he asks, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The idea and the language, who cut into your lane to slow you down? They're, they had a great start in God. But he's like, Now you've been hindered. They're troubled. They have issues. We're going to see there's issues in the church and even it seems like issues in lifestyle there but there's a problem and he wants them to think how, how did this happen 
Who brought this to pass? Hindered obedience is a sure sign of spiritual sickness. And there's a lot of people who have a good start in Christ, but find trouble along the way. And the enemy wants to do that. Many good kings in the Old Testament, if you read through, it'll sum up their life saying they did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. But when you read about their lives, a lot of them didn't finish very well. And it didn't mean their whole life was meaningless. In fact, God said largely they did what they were supposed to do, but they ended pretty badly. A lot of them had a good start. But somewhere along the line, something came in, got them off track. And he wants these believers to think about that. Trouble has come along the way. Their pursuit of Christ has slowed down. Their obedience to him has been affected. How does that happen in life? Well, it can happen in a lot of different ways. It could be caused by a romance. It could be caused by a professor we really like, friend, pastor, co-worker, circumstances. Something that starts off really good can become an idol, turn really bad. We should recognize it, though, if that's where we're at. If we've been hindered along the way, if our obedience isn't what it used to be, Paul says, hey, how did that happen to you? How did you end up in this situation you're in? He wants them to think about it. He says, verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who called you. I want you to recognize this. God's not the one doing this. This persuasion, that word persuasion in the Greek is used only here in the New Testament and has the idea of something treacherous or deceptive. How did you get persuaded into this? What He's saying that persuasion, it didn't come from God. And one of the things that the enemy wants to do and he knows he can do is if he can't get, a, get people to abandon the truth of God, then what he'll do is He'll try to persuade us that the truth is something a little bit different than we thought it was. And there's a lot of people out there who are struggling with the truth. They might not be acting like they're totally ready to give up on God. But they've been persuaded somehow that the truth isn't exactly what they thought it was. It's not so simple anymore. And so... By doing this, what Satan does is he brings trouble and harm, entangles people in other yokes of bondage, causes them to fall from grace, causes their obedience to be hindered. Right? They're not denying the truth, just skewing the truth a little bit. It's a more effective way. A person's not ready to deny the truth. These believers in Galatia, they weren't ready to deny the truth, but they were ready to be persuaded the truth was a little different than what they thought needed these other things. You, you just didn't understand what was required to be right with God, to be holy. You have to be circumcised. You have to start keeping these days. There was, a, there was a persuasion, and it began to affect their lives and their obedience. Paul says, where did this come from? It's not from him who called you. It's not from God this persuasion should have caused them to think, to realize this is not something from him. 
Verse 9, he says as clearly as he could, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is a reference, leaven, to bad teaching, false doctrine. Jesus would mention that in Matthew 16. The idea here being that the character of the whole is affected by a little. If we have bakers in here, you understand about leaven or yeast, right? It, it affects the whole thing. And Satan is devious, so he doesn't need to convince us to abandon the whole thing, our faith. He just needs to get us a little off target in the beginning and then allow the skewed trajectory to take its inevitable course. Right? Two ships going out to sea, and one has an angle a little bit off. It doesn't take long for them to be way apart from one another. I think it might have been G.K. Chesterton who said there's a lot of angles at which we can fall, but there's only one at which we can stand straight up. And Satan knows little leaven, little false doctrine, little bad teaching in there. If it doesn't get realized, if it doesn't get noticed, if it doesn't get corrected, it will affect the whole. Its trajectory might not be that bad at first, but down the line... And this is going to affect a lot of things. And Paul wants them to recognize that, not take it for granted. He says this, verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he be. Here, Paul, I think, again, he loves these believers. Uh, you know, love hopes all things, love believes all things. So he has confidence, not necessarily in them, but in the Lord. So he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. I have confidence. The idea is your, your mind's going to come around. You're going to hear the things I'm saying. You're going to see this in your life. You're going to be able to notice the, the persuasion that's not from God that's there. You're going to hear my, my arguments. So you're going to respond correctly. He trusts in the Lord that God's going to do that, and that God's going to care for them. I think that's a good, again, a good example for us. These, these believers were dear to him, and he wasn't giving up on them. He's going to speak the truth into their life, and he's going to speak confidence that you're going to get it. You're going to come around. You're going to see this. But he also throws out the warning. He says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. The idea is uh, these false teachers who are troubling them, they're the ones who brought these false teachings in, these persuasions that weren't from God. He says he, they're going to bear their judgment, whoever he is. That means God's no respecter of persons. doesn't matter if they're notable figures. God is going to deal with them, and he will deal seriously with false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, the Bible notices a difference between being tempted and being the tempter. Those two things are different. Uh, I believe it was Matthew Henry who said that men are tempted, but devils tempt. And to be a person who's tempted is just to be human. In all different arenas, we're going to find ourselves in temptation. But to be the person who is the one doing the tempting has a higher responsibility before the Lord. And I don't want to be the person who is found 
being the false teacher. We're all going to be confronted with false teaching, and we should respond to that. And I'm thankful in, the, in my life where the Lord shows me things that I thought about him that were wrong. But Paul throws out a stern warning to the person who is the one bringing this about. You better think about that seriously. God will deal with that. Matthew 18, 7, Jesus said, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. We're all going to face things in life, but you don't want to be the one instigating it, is the idea there. And Paul is serious about this because he knows eternity is on the line. And their Christian lives are on the line. And the gospel's on the line. And it's not a game to him. And he knows it's not a game to the Lord. So he says, He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, in 11, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Now, some people wonder, um, was he being accused of preaching circumcision or going back and forth because uh, he had Timothy get circumcised but not Titus? We're not really sure. I think it's still just the idea of Paul saying, if I was preaching circumcision, then I wouldn't be facing persecution. The Ishmael-like false teachers wouldn't be giving me a hard time. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The minute you start preaching the cross, there's an offense that comes. If you preach circumcision, there's no offense with that. Because preaching circumcision is essentially preaching good works. Even today, it's exactly the same. If you go to a crowd, a general crowd of people, and you preach good works, it's not an offense to man. Preaching the cross is an offense to man. The basic kind of American attitude is, if you're a nice person, you love other people, you're a civil neighbor, you're not a bigot or a racist or a religious hypocrite, then how could God not accept you? Essentially, God's got to accept you. You're, you're a good person. And if you preach that, you do these good things, you just love, you do this, people are, people are cool with that message. Yeah, we believe that. The basic message of the cross says we're all sinners by nature. We actively resist the truth of God. We're rebels against God and enemies of him and his purposes. And we are justly going to hell for our wickedness. That is not a popular message. The cross puts all human pride to death because it says we belong there. But Jesus took our place instead. And the message of the cross, therefore, puts all human pride to death. And therefore, it is always an offense. It will always be offensive to some. It will also always be heard by some. Because the cross has both sides of the message. I have to believe that I belong there, that the judgment Jesus Christ faced, I deserve justly. It's not an accident. 
It's not something that really I don't deserve. Maybe he took other people's sins on the cross, but mine weren't that bad. No, I believe that I belong there, but I also believe that he went there for me. That's the message of the cross. People don't want to believe the first half, that I belong there justly and deservedly so, more so than I could ever imagine, in fact. But when you're a sinner in need of a savior, you're happy to believe that message. That's good news. Yes, I belong there, and yes, he took it all for me. And so the offense of the cross comes with the message of the cross. If I can preach circumcision, if you can do good works and get there, then the offense of the cross has ceased. I can be a prideful human being and make my own way to salvation. But that's not the message of the cross. And Paul says, why am I still facing the offense then? I could wish, verse 12, Paul throws this in there. I think thinking about the cross and the offense of the cross kind of tips him off here. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, there's a little bit of an argument. The word cut off there means to mutilate themselves. So he's either talking about excommunication or most likely castration. Like if you want to circumcise yourself, why don't you go all the way then? Essentially. Uh, so some people think Paul's kind of like losing it. He's not. He's, he's not going overboard. Again, notice he, these things are on his mind. Those who trouble you. This group of teachers or maybe one primary individual, we don't know how many or what it looked like, but whoever they are, they are troubling you. And Paul essentially is wishing, well, I guess, number one, that they will not reproduce, right? And there's not going to be more of them. But also he knows eternity is on the line. Like this isn't, this isn't a game to be played with. The message of salvation is one message and it can't be perverted. And that's why he would say, even if an angel shows up from heaven, let that angel be eternally damned if it gives you a different message than the message that I gave you. These things are serious, and he knows that they're in jeopardy with them. Now, he's going to build on this uh, a little bit more of the practical, for he says, For you, brethren, verse 13, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So having proven we're free from the law, Paul strikes a balance between Slavery to the yoke of the law and slavery to the lawlessness of the flesh. So the Christian's kind of always walking a balance between legalism and license. And, and really, you know, probably in this room, we have people that come from both ends of that. Right? So you have a person who came out of a really legalistic background and they're sensitive to anything that seems like legalism. You know, you even just want to encourage people to be disciples in Christ. You'd be like, this is a little heavy. Don't be a legalist, right? And then on the other side of that, you have somebody that came out of a super liberal background. Anything that sniffs of liberalism, they're like, you are going to just give God away, you know, if you have any type of kind of Christian freedom. So there's always this kind of balance between the two because there's abuses on either side. And so Paul has established kind of, again, we're free from the law, 
But how do we use our freedom then? What does Christian freedom look like? Christian liberty look like? This is a good verse for you to know. People always have discussions about this thing. Man, I could do that. It's not sin. Who are you to tell me whatever? Notice he says, we've been called to liberty. Don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That word opportunity there, I don't know what your Bible says, but the Greek word actually has the idea of a base of operations. So what Paul is saying is, our freedom in Christ, are we using it as a base of operations for our flesh? Or a base of operations to serve God and others? Yes, I am set free from the law. I don't have to worry about becoming a Jew civilly, ceremonially, and even the rest of the law. Christ has set me free to be a follower of his. But from that base of operations, what do I do now? What is his spirit calling me to do? Just live for myself? To serve my flesh? Or to serve him and to serve others? We're free from the Old Testament law, but we have Christ's commands. We have the apostles' teaching. We have the Holy Spirit. What type of life should that look like? I want to read a couple of verses to you, um, and I think they're good defining scriptures for what a Christian freedom actually looks like biblically. Listen to this language. Romans 6.18 says, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.22 says, Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Romans 8.2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's not that I'm lawless. So I have a new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul says, Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. 1 Corinthians 9.19 says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And again, 1 Peter 2.16, Peter says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Almost every single one of those passages talks about us as servants of God still. Or slaves of God. That the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, is it really just a new type of slavery? That's certainly how the world thinks of the Christian life. right? It's just like a one big religious drudgery. You're a Christian, you can't have any fun in life. You, know, you tell somebody you don't drink and they are like confused as to how you even live. Like, you don't drink? Like, what, what do you do? You understand? They're, they're just struggling. We're set free from the law not to do whatever we want. The reason Jesus Christ sets us free from our sin and the law is to know God, to love, and serve him. Because that's what we were made to do. And only the Christian is truly free because the Christian is being conformed into the image that God was pleased to make you in creation. 
Nobody's free just because they do certain things they want to do because they're still slaves to sin. You're free when you begin to do what you were made to do. Uh, by way of stupid illustration, if I take a fish out of the ocean and throw it into a field and say you're free, it's not working. Right? If I snatch a bird out of the air and throw it under the water and say you're free, it's not actually free. Why? Because it's not created for those environments. Something is only actually free when it's doing the thing that it was made to do. You know what a human being is supposed to do? Love and serve God and one another then. So if I'm a slave to sin, I'm not actually free because I'm not loving God and I'm not serving others. Freedom is not how the world pictures Christian life because they think life comes through the expression and the satisfaction of their sinful self. So we do things that we know will never satisfy us. We give ourselves to alcohol or drugs or sex or money or fun, and we know it's not going to satisfy me. I'm just going to need more. And people aren't content. But the Christian is free to live and be what God made them to be. And nobody actually understands freedom until they begin to live like that. So that's why Paul can say, I have a law of liberty in the spirit in Christ Jesus, that I'm free to be a bond slave of God, that I'm free as a slave to righteousness, because being a slave to unrighteousness does not mean freedom. But being a slave to being right with God and man, that's freedom. And what Paul says is, I can take my freedom as a Christian and use it as an opportunity, a base of operations for the flesh instead of through love serving another person. So here's the critical question. Again, are Christians free to please themselves without displeasing God? I think this is the basic kind of general thought out there in a lot of Christian circles. Am I free to please myself without displeasing God? As long as I don't do something God's really upset with, I'm cool. Right? That's why we ask questions like, what is it, a sin? Well, like anything can be a sin. Right? Playing basketball is not a sin, but it could be a sin. We could become an idol in life. There's all types of things that can turn into sin. Has God given me the freedom to do what I want with my life as long as I'm not breaking any of his obvious laws? God forbid. <laughs> Why? Very simply, God didn't create me and set me free so that self could remain first. That's the answer. You notice in that question, am I free to please myself without displeasing God? Who's first? Me. I am not free to be first. Self-first life and thought process is the cloak that hides the abuse of our freedom in Christ Jesus. We need to repent of our self-life and shed that cloak. Personal pleasure before divine pleasure will never do. I'm not set free to please myself first and put God second. I'll never know actual freedom that way. 
because I wasn't made like that. I was made to please God first, and I will find my ultimate happiness in that, because that's who I'm made to be. That's what the Christian knows, and that's what the Christian can do. Romans 15, 1 through 3, Paul would say, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. The answer is, I'm not set free to be first in my life, even if it looks like good Christian-y things. I can do a whole lot of things that don't look that bad, and my life can be totally selfish and about me. And I'll never know freedom in that way. I will know freedom when I don't use it as an opportunity or a base of operations for my flesh to serve myself. I will know freedom when through love I begin to serve another. Paul says in verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You notice that? What does this selfless life look like? Well, it looks like love. Very simply, love to God and love to others. Love is the chief governing principle of this new life in Christ Jesus. The Bible clearly states that love is the condensed summary and the real-life practical aim of the law. That's what the law was all about. All those laws are essentially about loving one another. If I love somebody, I won't steal from them. (laughs) And I won't lie to them. And I won't commit adultery. And I won't murder them. If I love God correctly, he will be first and there will be no other gods in my life. And all the other things you could play out from the law, that was what the aim of them was. To love. Leviticus 19.18 says that. Matthew 22.39. Jesus teaches that. Paul will say the, the same in Romans 13, verses 8 and 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore it is the fulfillment of the law. Why do anything religious if the aim is not to love? Why get circumcised if I'm not going to love anybody? Why get baptized? Why go to church? What concern or care will we have for others in any of those things? The concern or care we have for ourselves should extend to others in the sphere of our lives. We should love the actual people around us. The people that we know, the people that God puts around us. We're to use our freedom to love and serve one another. Now, how does that happen? Well, it only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can do that who's not set free in Christ Jesus. The world certainly can't do it. They're not saved. They don't have God's love. They don't have the ability. It's believers who are exhorted to live that way. And Paul's saying, you don't need the law. The law is summed up in what God wants to give you anyway. The law could tell you what to do, but it couldn't give you power to love someone else. What Christ has set us free to do is actually to live it. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8, For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Everything the law required could never be accomplished in the flesh, but through the work of Christ in giving his Holy Spirit, it can now be accomplished in my life. And I can choose as a person set free to take my freedom and serve myself with it and abuse it and entangle it. Or I can choose to say, Lord, you set me free to be free, to love you and to love others. You said it was the greatest commandment. It's also the only way to truly live and to know freedom. The more alive I am, the more I will love God and love others. The more I'll be like him. We're not going to be in heaven one day thinking about ourselves first all the time. It'll be easier then. But I should want the most of that that I can have right now. And that's what he's working in us. So... Paul finishes with this, but if you, in contrast, verse 15, bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This is the actions of biting and devouring. They're almost animalistic. There's the picture. And he's likely springing from the divisions and the factions created by this false doctrine. No doubt there's people arguing about these things. It's the opposite of true godliness and love. And Paul will say, you're going to, if you act that way, you're going to be consumed by one another. Like if, if, if there's no love and there's just this fighting about things, the whole church would break down. Sadly, we've seen this over and over in human experience, right? It's the really kind of the self-destruction of the self-righteous. They just start eating and attacking one another. Friendships break down that way. Groups break down that way. Churches break down that way. And he's just warning, look, this is all going to fall apart. I'm sure there was already some of that happening. But true believers, they fulfill the law in their selfless love to God and to others. Again, Jesus would say in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we'll, know, we'll all know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. It doesn't say we have to agree with everybody else all the time. Paul is obviously disagreeing with the Galatians. But he is in a loving way speaking into their life. Right? As Christians, even if we disagree with one another... We should have enough love for one another that somebody in the outside world will look and say, there's something different about them. There's some, look, look at even the way they disagree. There's something different about them. Look at the way they would correct one another. Look at the way they interact in one another's lives. I would say particularly even in scenarios that are more difficult. Right? Jesus said, if you love the people who love you, you're not any different than the Pharisees or the publicans. But look at, look at how they react in these difficult scenarios. They still love one another. It's not always what our testimony is, but it's what our aim should be. And it's what the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and lives. And Paul is going to take this now and contrast it in a greater way in this next section that we do not have enough time for. So let's stand. We're going to pray. <clears throat> Thank you.
I would just encourage you, if the Lord is challenging you to see a yoke or burden in your life that he didn't put there, to ask him, show you how to not be entangled with that. I would also encourage you, if you're here and you're freedom has been self-focused and not Christ-focused, that you would just ask him for his Holy Spirit to help you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Because he said, if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have set us free to love you, to know you, to grow in you. Thank you, Lord, that we can walk in the light and have fellowship with you and that your blood cleanses us from all sin. You know, we all need that. We have to be cleansed constantly to walk with you, but you've made provision. And wherever we need it in our hearts and lives, Lord, give us your light. Give us your life. Give us your love. Shed it abroad in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.